Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're now in our second season, nearing the end of our second season, actually, and we're more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics here related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on food production at the intersection of environment and economics. The environmental sciences have documented large and worrisome changes in the Earth's systems, from climate change and loss of biodiversity to changes in hydrological and nutrient cycles, as well as depletion of our precious natural resources. These global environmental changes have potentially very large negative consequences for future human well-being. And they raise questions about whether our global civilization is on a sustainable path or is consuming too much, or I'd like to say consuming ourselves, by depleting our vital natural capital. The increased scale of economic activity and the consequential increasing impacts on a finite Earth arises from both major demographic changes, including population growth, It arises from shifts in age structure, from urbanization, and spatial redistributions through migration, as well as rising per capita income and shifts in consumption patterns, such as increases in meat consumption that come with rising income. At the same time, many people are as well consuming too little. In 2015, about 10% of the world's population and about 821 million people were malnourished. And this is primarily due to living in extreme poverty, which we must all be concerned about, as we have recently become acutely aware and have just seen with the COVID crisis, our world is interconnected like a scrambled egg. And of course, you cannot unscramble anything. So we must be concerned about those who are malnourished as well as ourselves. The discipline of economics arguably should play a central role in meeting the challenge of developing our world in a more sustainable way. The core question at the heart of sustainable growth is how do we allocate these finite resources of the planet to meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of our future generations to meet their own needs? Indeed, the standard definition of economics really is the study of allocation under scarcity. However, the fields of ecological, environmental, and resource economics are not core fields within economics. Therefore, economics does not seem to be fully engaged in our sustainable development work. But given the large role 
of economic activity in causing the rapid change in our Earth systems and the scale of the challenges that we have today with our sustainable growth, there is an urgent need for more rapid integration of economics into all of the aspects of our environmental issues and challenges. This is a lot. And today we want to explore food production as it is at the intersection of economics and the environment. And here to help us unpack and explore some of this are three experts. We have Sarah Lowe, Channing Arndt, and Kurt Rosenstrader. Sarah is an associate professor of regional economics at the University of Missouri, and she holds the Fred V. Hinkle Chair in Agriculture in their Division of Applied Social Sciences there at the University of Missouri. Sarah also directs the University of Missouri's Extension's Regional Economic and Entrepreneurial Development Program. Her research focuses on rural entrepreneurship and innovation, as well as food manufacturing, establishment dynamics, the relationship between financial capital available and rural firm survival, as well as the impact of broadband access on rural economic development. Sarah spent 10 years at the USDA's Economic Research Service in Washington, D.C., and she holds a Ph.D. in Agriculture and Consumer Economics. Welcome, Sarah. Did I get all that right? Yes. Thank you, Bernice. We're glad you could join us. Our next guest is Channing Arndt. Channing is with the International Food Policy Institute, and Channing heads the Environment and Production Technology Division of the International Food Policy Institute, where he explores global change, natural resource management, science and technology policy, spatial data and analytics, and institutions and governance. Channing has 30 years of experience in development economics with seven years combined resident experience in Morocco and Mozambique. He has published more than 85 articles in leading academic journals. And among his recent book is The Political Economy of Clean Energy Transition. And he has taken leadership roles in major policy development, such as the economics of adaptation to climate change for the World Bank. Channing's research focus has been on agriculture development, poverty measurement, market integration, nutrition, and gender discrimination. Channing has a PhD in agricultural economics. Welcome, Channing. We are so glad you could make time to join us today. Thank you for having me, Bernice. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. And our next guest is Kurt Rosenstrader. Kurt is an associate professor in the Department of Agricultural and Engineering, as well as Food Science and Human Nutrition at Iowa State University. As well, Kurt is a visiting professor at Montpellier University in the south of France, which I am very jealous of. And he is executive director of the Distillers Grain Technology Council. Kurt is a food process engineer where he has worked in industry, government, as well as academics. His professional interests focus on creating sustainable pathways forward for the human food and animal feed industries by developing, analyzing, and optimizing processes and products that maximize value and minimize negative consequences for all stakeholders, including our precious environment. Kurt has a PhD in agricultural and biosystems engineering. Welcome, Kurt. Did I get all that right? 
Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you all today. And thank you again, all of you all, for being with us. We're very excited that you could help us out with this interesting and sometimes complicated subject. I want to start out with Channing in terms of talking to us about the impact of our food production on the economy and how does this differ in the U.S. perhaps compared to the rest of the world? Well, thanks, it, Bernie. It's, it's very different. Um, the U.S. now, U.S. agriculture is, is something like 2% of GDP or, or less uh, and, and about that or, or less uh, of employment. Uh, and this is a change from what it was, you know, 100 years ago. It, it used to be that there were lots of people working on farms, and farms are really important. Agriculture is a really important part of the, of the whole economy. And that's the way it is now in, in most developing countries. So uh, in, in most developing countries, uh, agriculture is a big sector, um, and it's even bigger in terms of employment. And this makes agriculture, uh, because there's so many people in developing countries, agriculture is sort of the world's largest employer. Um, you know, it's, it's a it's a tenuous job, but uh, but this is where the largest number of people will get their their livelihoods. Channing, I'm still stuck on the fact that in the U.S., agriculture is only two percent of our GDP, whereas much 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 greater in other countries, developing countries. Yet the amount of food we consume is so much more. And it's because we're so much wealthier, Bernice. Um, we don't have as many very, very poor countries anymore, around 35 with per capita income less than less than $1,000. But a lot of countries with per capita incomes, and so in other words, you're earning, you know, the average person is earning, you know, a little more than $1,000 per year, less than, a, that's less than $100 a month. Indeed, and we're going to go to break right now, and I'm going to come back and just finish this subject off really briefly. We want to give a shout-out to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Our other sponsors are all food-related for this month. That is North Haven Gardens serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. Our other sponsor is Marshall Grain Garden Center, a new sponsor. Nature's Merchant since 1946, providing organic gardening expertise and supplies and plants for our North Texas climate, including landscaping design and installation, as well as pet supplies, including a choice of raw diets and wet meals. Check out their events and weekly promotions at marshallgrain.com. Our other sponsor is Profound Foods. They are the marketplace for real local food in North Texas. Profound Foods delivers local and organic food to your door each week with free home delivery in 33 North Texas zip codes. The deliveries include fresh produce as well as chef-created goods from their own kitchen, such as pasta sauces, jams, salads, and family meal kits. With over 50 local farmer producers, Profound Foods is building a more connected, resilient food system in North Texas. Check them out at profoundfoods.com. And our last sponsor is Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, affectionately known as FARFA. 
If you grow your own food, whether for yourself or for sale, you won't want to miss the Southern Family Farmers and Food Systems Conference coming August 8th through 10th in St. Marcus, Texas. And this is an event for anyone who supports sustainable agriculture and wants better access to healthy local foods. Check them out at farmandranchfreedom.org. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to today's episode of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio as we are exploring food production at the intersection of environment and economics. And we're back with our expert guest, Dr. Sarah Lowe with the University of Missouri, Dr. Channing Arndt with the International Food Policy Institute, and Dr. Kurt Rosenstrater at Iowa State University, as well as the Distillers Grain Technology. Welcome back, guys, and thank you so much for being with us. Okay, I am still stuck, and I just have one question, Channing. (laughs) As you can tell, I am just still stuck on the fact that the U.S. is probably one of the largest consumers and certainly wasters of food, yet it's the lowest percentage of our GDP. And I discovered last year on some of our shows on food production that it seems to be a well-known fact among experts that the more developed a country is, the more is their food consumption. Why is that? Well, we like to, you know, we like to eat and uh, we like, food is one of the pleasures of life in, in a way. I mean, you have food as just something that you eat um, to, to stay alive. And, uh, and diets in poor countries can be very, very basic. Uh, so, you know, um, we did consumption surveys in, in Mozambique, and it was uh, maize meal, cassava, uh, some pumpkin leaves, a few vegetables, and that's it. Um, not much more, not much variety uh, and, and very inexpensive uh, ingredients. You know, we prefer now, we want, to, we want to, you know, some people like a nice steak, some people like seafood, some people... And then we want a lot of service with our food. That's the other thing that comes along. So instead of spending a lot of time, you'll have Mozambican women. They'll go out in the field. They'll harvest the grain. They'll spend a lot of time pounding it. They'll have to make it into, into a meal. We, we buy it, you know, pre, pre-processed. We can throw a, a whole meal into the oven and have it come back, uh, come back out, right? on that subject, I'm very interested to see, maybe we'll know in a year or so, very interested to see if the COVID pandemic has brought about any significant changes in the amount of processing we do to our food or the amount of processed food that we eat. So I don't know, I doubt that there's any statistics or research been done on it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. Sarah, how is the economics of our food production shaping what we eat and how is that impacting our environment? Yeah, definitely. Well, let me pick up kind of where Shannon left off on um, this value added, right? So he's talking about uh, women in Mozambique pounding grain and processing it. Um, We, I just looked it up, we have about 1.3% of jobs and income in the U.S. are food manufacturing, okay? So almost as much as as production agriculture, we're processing that food. So we're adding a lot of value. We're making it more convenient, more tasteful. Um, You know, there's the supply chains are, are much thicker. Um, so, so we have a very different food environment here in the U.S. And 
I think at the consumer level, overall food and beverage spending has been stagnant for a long time, but I, I do see shifting purchasing patterns, okay? And, um, you know, kind of like the women in Mozambique, on one end, you can have plain sandwich bread. You can go to the store. It's a commodity. It's very inexpensive. Um, it's, a, it's affordable for a lot of families. And so we are really lucky in the U.S. to have a lot of very inexpensive, accessible food. Think about cheese and, and you know, milk. And all, a lot of these things are readily available um, and, and accessible and relatively affordable. On the other end of the spectrum, we have consumers that are increasingly interested in specialty foods, place-based foods, um, foods produced by smaller or niche firms. So we can compare the sandwich bread to artisanal bread baked in a local bakery. Right? And so that, that artisanal bread has a lot of value added, is creating a lot of um, economic impact in that, that community where the artisanal bread is baked and sold. Um, compared to the, the more accessible, affordable food. Um, so really food manufacturing and processing, just like Shannon said, we could put a, a frozen meal in the dinner and pull it out in the oven and pull it out. Uh, it's, uh, it's, we're incredibly lucky in the U.S. Uh, most of us are incredibly lucky to be able to access food. Um, and, and, you know, I'm a working mom. Uh, I love the convenience, the, the processed foods um, as much as anyone else. And, and you I mean, you don't have time to come home and beat the meal and roll the dog? <laughs> no, you know, when I was in D.C., uh, before a lot of my friends had kids, you know, we lived the CSA and stuff, and we're trying to figure out how to cook every little thing from the CSA. And uh, now we're driving minivans and, you know, eating frozen dinners. <laughs> you know, we would love to. Uh, we would love to. Um, but but yeah, I mean, um, our busy our busy lifestyles, um, COVID, lack of childcare, lack of schools, all these things affect the time that we have to prepare food. Um, affect maybe maybe push us to go eat out more, and um, and I think that 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 a lot of this innovation is consumer driven. Consumers want. Um, you know, these specialty foods. Um, other consumers want commodity food, but we're really lucky to have to have both. What's driving what? Is the processing or the specialization of food driving the purchasing patterns? Or is human behavior or sociological conditions, demographics, driving yeah. the availability or the processing of our food? Right. I would like to think that um, in the U.S., we're relatively entrepreneurial people. I would like to think that consumer demand, consumer-driven uh, innovation is in fostering food entrepreneurship, is fostering you know, different kind of people to get into production, agriculture, different types of food um, processing. Um, I think it really has to start with the consumer interest. And I think a lot of your listeners are probably very interested in in some of these specialty foods, niche foods, local and regional foods. So um, everything in economics is very complex, you know, yeah. systems-oriented. Um, but, but I'm inclined to say it's uh, consumer-driven. And really briefly, before we leave that, and then I want to go back to Sarah and something else, Channing and Kurt, would you all like to weigh in on that? What's driving what? What has been your experience or what's your opinion? Sure. So... Sarah, you've raised some really interesting points, and I totally agree. 
uh, consumers do drive behavior to a, a large degree, even though many consumers don't really, you know, understand how much power they do have, especially when they vote with their pocketbook en masse. So you think about wholesale changes, uh, at least in Iowa. Iowa produces not only corn and soybeans, Iowa also produces a lot of eggs um, that are used throughout the U.S. And several years ago, consumers started to make their voices heard about uh, cage-free egg production, for example. And the industry has very quickly pivoted to provide cage-free eggs. Similarly, um, gestation-free stalls for uh, the swine industry. Uh, consumers made their voices heard and industry changed rapidly. So it, it's, it's shown that, that industry will respond to consumers. Consumers just have to, to understand that they do have a voice. They just need to make it heard. Well, I guess one of the things that I wonder about is a lot of food is processed, and in many cases, we're busy, and that's all there is there. So I'm wondering then, to what degree is some of the availability and the food processors and food manufacturing, to what degree are some of the things they are doing for price competitiveness or what have you, to what degree is that driving then our choices and our behavior and our consumption? I have to think there's some of that there. Yeah, I think, Bernice, I think I think definitely, you know, I talked about the bimodal distribution of food production in the U.S. with the, you know, affordable, accessible sandwich bread uh, compared to the artisanal bread. And sure, I mean, we have a lot of people in the U.S. who really are struggling to feed their families. And, you know, um, if it's kind of going back to Shannon's uh, story about Mozambique. You know, if you've got if you've got to feed your family, you got to feed your family, and so then you maybe don't have the luxury of of some of these options for say healthier or place based or specialty foods, right? Um, you're, you're hungry, uh, so definitely, definitely. Shannon, do you want to say anything to that? Yeah, I think there's there's an availability issue, like Bernice was talking about, that in some poor communities. Um, they're very poorly served for fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh food in general, and, and this turns into a real problem. Uh, you know, we talk about problems of hunger, but we also have problems of obesity. <laughs> we talk about very poor people, those earning only a few hundred dollars a year, but we have you know, people once you get to uh, earning a thousand or two, then, then uh, you know, th there's choices, but often they're still buying very inexpensive calories, and particularly in, in excuse me, urban areas, sometimes, you know, the, the cheapest calorie are potato chips or, you know, things that really aren't very good for you at all. And, and if your diet becomes heavy in, you know, a lot of heavily processed foods that are, that are high in fat, high in sugar, then, then you're looking at you know, obesity and, and, and other health problems. And that's a big issue in the food system that, that we need to address. Indeed, and shortly before we go to break, and we can talk about this more on the other side, in relationship to what all of you all just talked about, I have to think that there could be healthier ways to manufacture potato chips. I know as college students, you know, one of their staples is the ramen noodles, which I have just never been able to stomach. But I am told and I've read that the sauce in those is just really abhorrent. I have to think that there are healthier ways to make that that still don't cost a lot more money. 
But again, I want to talk about that on the other side. We're going to go ahead and go to break now. And we will be right back with these really great experts who are making us all much smarter. Thank you. We'll be back on the other side. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on food production at the intersection of environment and economics. And we are here with Dr. Sarah Lowe from the University of Missouri, Channing Arndt with the International Food Policy Institute, and Kurt Rosenstrater at Iowa State University and Executive Director of the Distillers Grain Technology Council. Again, thank you guys for being with us. You really are making me much smarter and our audience too. Before the break, again, we were talking about the possibility, and I know that Channing has done some work and research with this. And in my mind, I have to think that we should be able to make some of this what we call junk food or fast food healthier, that it doesn't have to be that way. And again, want to talk a lot more about that. But before we get to that, I want to talk to Kurt a little bit. Kurt, in recent times, there's been a real increased awareness about sustainable or more environmentally beneficial ways of food consumption. And so I want to talk about how does this impact different segments of our population and why should everyone care about this? Uh, you know, I'm not sure how many of your, your audience have seen an inconvenient truth came out, gosh, uh, quite a number of years ago. It doesn't seem like it's been that long ago, but, you know, that really brought to a lot of people's attention uh, the impact of lots of different human activities on the environment. And, you know, the the idea of human or anthropogenic uh, impacts really has been around a lot longer than an inconvenient truth. But it, this was just a very successful way to, to, you know, get the story out there that we need to pay attention and we need to do a better job of paying attention to what we're doing because uh, we as a species really have a, a large impact uh, on the environment, not just our micro environment, but uh, global environment. And I think that's difficult for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. Um, and it's quite interesting because we can't talk about environmental impacts without talking about politics. And as a scientist, uh, I try to avoid politics, but uh, a lot of things that, um, not just in the US, but many countries, uh, people's lives are impacted uh, whether they know it or not, through policies. And um, so sometimes governments can have very positive impacts, uh, specifically on the environment, and other times the same government can have uh, quite negative impacts. And um, it, it's quite interesting because at the moment, it's very easy to to watch the news, read the news in the U.S., and... and um, understand what uh, many of the current uh, administration's environmental goals are. Um, and it's not just in the U.S. It's many countries have environmental goals. Um, and specific to the food industry, uh, goals are, they're not just seen as a governmental um, 
approach, but many companies uh, throughout the entire food supply chain are working on initiatives, and they have been for many years. It's not just um, the current administration, but it's also uh, previous administrations and either facilitating or, or hindering uh, progress towards environmental goals. But many companies are trying to make the food supply and the food systems more sustainable from farm to fork. And uh, many companies, if you check out their web pages, will have their, um, it's not just their annual reports, but now they have corporate uh, responsibility reports where they talk about um, how they're improving people's lives, how they're improving nutrition, how they're improving environmental performance. And so uh, I, I think the, the consumer who is interested uh, certainly can, uh, can learn quite a bit about the companies that uh, they're potentially purchasing food from. You know, back to your question about making junk food less junky. Yeah. Um, and I, I will be honest, I love chips. I love candy, and my family gets very frustrated that I always have to try the new flavors. And uh, uh, Pringles, for example, I'm not promoting Pringles, but they've got a series of new flavors this summer that, oh my goodness, they're amazing. They're really high in salt, but they're really amazing. Or M&M's always has innovations, but I have to try the new M&M's. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's so interesting because when you you can't consider all of these things without thinking about the economics and you know i talked to some of my colleagues at companies that manufacture snack foods um, and i say to them you know you really should make a a lower fat or a fat-free oatmeal cream pie type of thing and they tell me that's a great idea but you know it costs x percent more to make it fat-free and our studies have shown that consumers don't want to pay X percent more. So, um, and then the flip side of this, um, so I'm of a generation that likes to eat ready-to-eat breakfast cereals for breakfast in the mornings, and there's one in particular that I've eaten for many years, and it, it's been really good. It's got a 100% vitamins and minerals, this whole suite of, of things. And I was looking at it the other day on the nutrition label, They've reduced the vitamin minerals to 10% of your daily requirement. And I know the daily requirements haven't changed, but um, the supplementation that they are doing in the manufacturing process has. So, you know, I, I know that we, we have to think about the costs as well as, as the environmental impacts. You really have to, to consider the, the whole picture. But I also see something I remembered. I've been in this field. I also produce a green, healthy, and sustainable living monthly publication, and I've been doing it for 11 years. And back in those days, you couldn't even mention or breathe or act like you were going to form your mouth to say organic because people just turned off because it was automatically more expensive. Now, organic is about on par with non-organic. So what happened there? That tells me <laughs> that the capacity can exist if it does not exist to produce better quality food in terms of nutrition and health at a cost that's not that far above. Sarah, you look like you were going to say something, and Shannon, you look like you had something to say too. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just going to 
to comment on the organic piece. I mean, I think the reason the price of organic produce, for example, has come down is um, they've figured out how to mass produce it. You know, just like we mass produce corn in Iowa, right? We're now mass producing organic baby carrots. My son loves them. Um, <laughs> right? So this is back to this kind of mass production kind of thing. And uh, that's an interesting thing about local and regional foods or these specialty or, or back to our artisanal bread is kind of by definition, you can't mass produce it. So it's kind of an interesting thing when you brought up the, the organic piece. I think education is a big piece of this too, Bernice. You know, one of the things that local and regional food brings to, to the table is connecting people to farms. I mean, we've gotten to the point where many young people now are several generations off the farm, whereas a few generations ago, most Americans knew someone who farmed or their grandparents farmed. And so uh, to achieve these sustainability goals that Shannon just talked about, we need to better educate Everybody, all of our listeners need to better understand what goes into um, food production, food processing, what, what are the byproducts, what are the point source pollution, you know, all these things. We need to better understand that system. And I think that um, engaging people kind of face-to-face -face with here's what's going on in our community is a, is a great educational tool. Just a few seconds before we have to go to break, Kurt, you want to weigh in on that? I just want to add one one comment that um, the, the educational piece. Um, for those of you that have children, I'm sure you can relate. My kids do not like fruits and vegetables, and you know I I have to say we've been promoting the ideas of more fruits and vegetables in our diets uh, for for decades, and you know. I, I think there's there's a lot to be said for increasing that in the diet uh, compared to, to grains and meats and, and other products. We'll take back up on that after the break. We're going to go to break now. We want to give a shout out to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Our other sponsors, North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. Our other sponsor is Marshall Grain Garden Center, Nature's Merchant since 1946, providing organic gardening expertise and supplies, as well as plants for our Texas climate and landscaping and design installation, as well as pet supplies, including raw diets and wet meals. Check out their weekly events and promos at marshallgrain.com. Our other sponsor is Profound Foods. They are the marketplace for real local food in North Texas. Profound Foods delivers local organic food to your door each week with free home delivery in 33 North Texas zip codes. Their deliveries include fresh produce as well as chef-crafted foods from their commercial kitchen, such as pasta sauces, jams, salads, and family meal kits. With over 50 local farmer producers, Profound Foods is building a more connected resilient food system in North Texas. Check them out at profoundfoods.com. Our other sponsor is Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, FARFA. If you grow your own food, whether for yourself or for sale, you won't want to miss the Southern Family Farmers and Food Systems Conference coming August 8th through 10th in San Marcos, Texas. 
This is the event for anyone who supports sustainable agriculture and wants to better access healthy local foods. Check them out at farmandranchfreedom.org. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today to our show on food production at the intersection of environment and economics. And we are back with Dr. Sarah Lowe, Dr. Kurt Rodenstrader, and Dr. Channing Arndt, who are making us all much smarter. Before the break, we were talking about the opportunity, is what I'll call it, for the food manufacturing process to make healthier food. We talked at length in the first part of the show about the need for more accessible and affordable food. And again, this time we brought up the rear with also healthier or more nutritious food. But now I want to move on a little bit and talk to Channing. You have said that the main challenges confronting agriculture and food systems are very region specific. Can you tell us a little bit more about these challenges and how the region specificity fits into all of that? So, you know, in the U.S., really, unless we're going to export it, we don't need to produce more food in the sense that in the aggregate, we're probably the population's not growing very much. Um, you know, we don't, we eat quite a lot already. Uh, so, you know, so in aggregate, there's not a big need for more food demand. What, what, what we do see a lot of needs is in there's some quality, the type, you know, the composition of what we're eating, and then also the environmental impacts. We'd like to get We'd like to get those down. So that's that's a challenge that we have here. Uh, you go to other parts of the world, uh, notably Africa, and you have a, um, relatively low consumption. You have high population growth. You have the expectation of income growth. You're going to get a lot of increase in in food demand, and a lot of that food supply, uh, even you know, trade is important, but still most food is produced, especially in the developing world, relatively close to to the consumer. So the there's a, there's a great, big, huge production demand that goes along with the environmental issues, um, the employment, the development issues. So uh, it's, it's, we have big global food sector problems that we all share, um, where you know, food, the agriculture sector is you know, scratching away at the world uh, in a way that, that, is, that is unsustainable. We have to stop that. Uh, uh, and, and that's a goal, but, but in terms of when we look specifically region by region, the exact nature of the challenges are different, and, and a lot of it has to do with their economic situation, right? And, that, and then that often spills over into what kind of environmental challenges they're, they're facing. Based upon our conversation at the top of the show, it appears that a lot of these developing nations, as they develop, they will begin to consume more and more food. Exactly. And they will so become means, like us, which will present a whole other set of challenges from what we know now. But hopefully, by the time they begin to consume as much as we do, there will be these new and better technologies to well, make it more affordable and nutritious. That's right. I mean, one of the things that we have now is we can put solar arrays down almost anywhere, which means you know, where there's sunshine, we can have electricity and we can pump. So, uh, you know, whether that's automatically a great thing is, is not 100% clear, but it is an option. And it allows people to, to produce a better quality food. It allows them to be more resilient um, and with 
electricity. You can also cool, so that means you can sell things more easily, keep things for market. Uh, that's, that's a big change. Um, another big change, and this is swept across uh, U.S. agriculture, is, is precision agriculture. I mean, we're now, uh, you know, farmers are, are putting just the right amount of fertilizer on almost a, you know, a yard, square yard by square yard basis. And that's coming um, to, to the rest of the world. The satellites are there, uh, that sort of digital information. That's another big potential uh, for, for doing things in a, in a smarter way. There's quite a few others that are coming. But I'll let Kurt take the processing yeah. side because that's his area. Yeah, Kurt, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening beneficial on that level? This is such an interesting question uh, because the one of the last times I was in Tanzania, for example, uh, my colleagues wanted to know about life cycle assessment, and you know, in asking them, why are you interested in life cycle assessment? They told me, and they're working in the food manufacturing uh, training sector. Um, they don't want to make the same mistakes that we've made over here in the U.S. They want to build in sustainability from the ground up. And that uh, spoke volumes to me. Um, and, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all around the world, uh, whether you're talking about dairy production or meat production or fish production or fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And so I, what I see happening in, in many African countries is um, not just, you know, the, the high-tech type of, uh, food processing factories, uh, but I see heat exchangers, for example, being used to make their thermal processing more efficient. Um, you know, a variety of technologies that are are more efficient in terms of electrical motors. So when you you look at, you know, where can you make a, a food processing factory more efficient? Uh, those are being built in from the ground up. And I, I think this is really exciting because, yes, there's going to be more demand for food around the world. Uh, but I think it's going to be what we're going to be see what we're going to be seeing is smarter food manufacturing, smarter food production. Indeed, that is very hopeful, Kurt. But I hear you also saying that a lot of that is happening in the developing because they are growing, they're doing it. Hopefully that can trickle down to us over here in the already developed or the overdeveloped. Kurt, before we leave you, you do a lot of research on grains. Can you talk to us briefly about why grains are so important in our food production and then what technologies can be used to reduce any adverse environmental impact of grain processing? This is also an interesting question. <laughs> um, you know, what I, I like to tell my students uh, when, when I teach about grain, you know, really, we don't think about it very often. Um, anymore, but we really are uh, subject to history. We really are relics of what our forebears and our ancestors have done, whether we're talking about maize here in the U.S. or we're talking about uh, wheat and uh, similar types of grains throughout the Middle East and Europe, uh, or we're talking about rice through much of China and um, and India and the Indian subcontinent, you know, really the, the basis for a lot of countries in terms of their food has been uh, rooted in history and the grains that were domesticated in those spaces. Um, now you fast forward uh, to the 21st century and, you know, here in the Midwest of the U.S., it's really phenomenal. We can buy all kinds of foods at the grocery store that are produced in other parts of the world, and it's, it's phenomenal. 
you know, whether it's cheese from France or jackfruit from Bangladesh, uh, it's, it's great the things that we can buy. And it's also interesting, our food production is changing as well. And so, you know, the, the idea of maize being a staple crop throughout much of sub-Saharan Africa, you know, why is that maize didn't originate there, but it's been, been um, cultivated and promoted. Um, so, you know, grain historically has played a big role in many uh, countries over the, the last many well, millennia. And, you know, you fast forward to, to what we have happening in the U.S., Grain is used for all kinds of things, not just for human foods, but you know, as as we've reached capacity for for using grain in in human food products, we think about pet foods, we think about bioplastics and biofuels, and all of the innovations that we, um, our scientists and engineers, have been able to develop, whether it's it's rice or wheat or maize or whatever the grain is. But can, what's the environmental impact though of processing all of that grain? Oh, well, I think we have to think about not just processing, but the, the growth and the cultivation yeah. of that grain as well. So we've got the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico uh, because of uh, the nitrogen and phosphorus runoff throughout um, the Midwest. It's coming down the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. Um, that's changing because of new, like, like uh, Channing was talking about, precision agriculture is helping reduce the, the phosphorus and the nitrogen runoff. But we also have other technologies being used on farms to reduce that environmental impact also. So, um, yeah, the food that we have, whether it's grains or meats, whatever, um, they all have different kinds of water footprints and energy footprints and carbon footprints. Um, I think as, as we move forward with better technologies, I think it's, we're going to be seeing significant reductions in, in our carbon emissions. We're already seeing significant reductions in pesticide use, for example, as well. Um, I know that uh, you know, the idea of genetically modified crops is still controversial, not just around the world, but here in the U.S. as well. Uh, there have been some studies in recent years looking at the impact on herbicides and insecticides, and are they living up to the hype of reduced environmental impacts? And uh, Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks on our show on Ag. Thank you so much. Last word, Sarah. I just think this has been a very interesting conversation bringing in the international pieces. And I, I encourage all the listeners to go out there and think about what's going on. You know, Shannon mentioned the regional dimensions. Think about what's happening in your region. Uh, is water scarcity a bigger issue? Food processing uses a lot of water. Um, think about that when you make choices at the grocery store, at the farmer's market. Indeed. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the day when every food that we eat, in addition to the nutrition, it'll have a label on the environmental impact. I think that'll make a difference, just like that nutrition label does. Thank you so much. We have been with Kurt Rosenstrater from Iowa State University, Sarah Lowe, University of Missouri, and Channing Arndt from the International Food Policy Institute. Thank you all for being with us. We really appreciate your time. You have just made us all much smarter. And thank you, listeners, today for listening in to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, 
your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of these tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening today and join us again next week for more on the food production, agriculture, and land use, the impacts on our health and our environment. Thank you, listeners.